My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Fashion is everywhere, isn't it? I just was on my way home from a meeting and I saw a billboard for a new ice cream and it was called The Fashion Collection. What? <laughs> just made me laugh because I thought, come on, the relationship between an ice cream or a chocolate bar or coffee and fashion is pretty tenuous stuff and yet... Fashion is everywhere and its perceived glamour is so attractive to brands when it comes to selling products, isn't it? Now, the Met Gala is just around the corner. It's next week. And that means there'll be even more fashion everywhere you look. It'll be on the nightly news. Your social media feeds are going to be clogged with who wore what. So this got me thinking about the huge influence of the red carpet on pop culture and how it all works. And also who, apart from the designer, creates these looks. Because make no mistake, celebrities do not dress themselves at these things. So what better time to share an episode about styling? In this one, you're going to meet New York-based fashion editor Laura Jones, who is fast carving a niche for herself as sustainable fashion's go-to creative. Australian born and bred, Laura was a head stylist at MTV before moving to New York. There, she's worked for all sorts of magazines, including one of my favourites, W. She has styled the likes of Alicia Keys and Rebecca Hall for red carpet events, including the Golden Globes and the Cannes Film Festival, which is also coming up in May. Actually, Cannes has been in the headlines this week with news that there will be a helpline for women to report sexual harassment at the festival this year. And I raise this because in this interview, Laura and I talk quite a lot about the Me Too movement and its context in fashion. We recorded this a little while ago, and it wasn't too long after the Golden Globes, so we discuss wearing black in solidarity at that event. But interestingly, in less than two weeks, I'll be off to the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. I can't wait. And there's going to be a panel in that lineup, which is titled The Wellbeing of Models in the Me Too Economy. 
and uh, I think it features Edie Campbell, the British Vogue cover girl and face of Burberry, Sarah Ziff of the Model Alliance, who is incredible. I love Sarah. And the casting director, James Scully. So look, this is a very timely topic and it's not going to go away. Anyway, you're going to love my good friend Laura Jones. She's very considered and a smart thinker. She reads everything and is diligent about putting her work in context. She does a great job here of decoding what a stylist actually does, how they work on pictures and with celebrities and private clients. And it's just really interesting to hear Laura talk about what ethical fashion means to her and also how we might apply ideas of health and well-being to fashion. She also has a new venture. She's just launched a fantastic new sustainable fashion magazine online. It's called The Front Lash, and I'm thrilled to be featured in the first issue. I'm going to share a little snippet from her editor's letter. Laura wrote, Beyond the fantasy and opulence of fashion, behind the smoke and mirrors, there is another side, and it's nearly as ugly as the fantasy is beautiful. She wrote, I've experienced and witnessed abusive and demeaning behaviour like the Devil Wears Prada, but not as redemptive. I've sat in boardrooms with marketing teams while they pick apart women's appearances, delineating their version of beauty. And I've watched sick and malnourished girls be lauded for their, inverted commas, fantastic figure. And she concludes, I've flown tens of thousands of unworn garments around the world, polluting on demand. So for anyone who thinks that styling and fashion is not serious stuff, this episode is for you. As always, thank you for listening and please keep sharing on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and rating and reviewing in iTunes makes me happy. And I need cheering up because I've got a cold, which you can probably hear. Nothing for it but whiskey, I reckon. Welcome, Laura Jones. Thank you. I am excited that we got to do this in Sydney when you're having a whistle-stop tour of the sunshine. Me too. I'm enjoying the sunshine very much, as a matter of fact. We're good at that in Australia. (laughs) You are. I wanted to start by talking about styling. If I think about ethical and sustainable fashion styling, I think about you. And I found you through that. And before I ever met you, I was glued to your work because there's not that many ethical and sustainably minded high fashion stylists out there. There are not enough, I will say that for sure. There will hopefully be many more in the near future. That word, stylist, I feel like we all use it a lot. Maybe we even describe ourselves as stylists when we're doing stuff on Instagram or whatever it might be. But as someone who is working on the front line of that industry, Mm -hmm. do you want to start by just telling us what it means? Like, What does your job look like day to day? My job looks very different day to day. No two days are the same. So I style many different things, be it a runway show, be it a red carpet event, be it an editorial for magazine, or be it a commercial campaign. And what does that look like? I mean, you pull clothes, you'd get models dressed in them, but there's a lot more to it than that from a creative perspective. When do you start? It starts either because I have an idea of something that I want to create or someone has a job that they want me to do. And either way, it sort of starts with an idea and a brief. So let's just take an example. So let's say for an editorial shoot, either I'll be approached by a magazine or maybe I'll team up with a photographer that I love to work with. And we will sort of come up with a concept inspired by either the fashion of the season, which will usually happen sort of after fashion week or inspired by an exhibition or a song or a book or a movie or a TV show. 
However it happens, an idea is formed and we want to sort of communicate a particular idea through a fashion image. The worst question ever is, where do you get your ideas? It's the question you dread as, for instance, someone who writes books, when people just say that, where do you get your ideas? Because the answer is everywhere, for God's sake. However, where do you get your ideas, Laura? (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere, really. Do you know, for me, I tend to be quite people-centric in the way that I approach styling, which is probably why my styling has evolved over time. I started strictly in fashion magazines and have since moved into a lot more celebrity work. And really because I like people. Um, You've dressed some very interesting women. I've dressed some wonderful women. If I rattle them off because I can name drop and then you don't have to. (laughs) For instance, Naomi Harris, Rebecca Hall on the red carpet frequently as ongoing clients. But then lots of people like Uma Thurman, mm-hmm. Rachel Weiss, Katie Holmes, looking edgy. Yes, she was looking edgy. That was a fun shoot, actually. What is it about those women or the women that you work for that you look for when you're doing it? I mean, obviously, if a magazine commissions you, then you get on with it and do it. But to work repeatedly with someone like Rebecca Hall, who is a fabulous actress and I love, what is it about those women that makes you want to pick them? What are you looking for and how do you work together? Well, I feel very lucky with the women that I have styled for extended periods of time for appearances and red carpet in the sense that I often tend to end up working with or attracting women who have shared values with me and are really quite strong, talented, amazing women. I mean, Rebecca Hall is really into sustainable fashion. She wears Tome. I think yes. she's a friend of Tome. She's a very good friend of Tome. Um, she's a client that is really fantastic because she really enjoys me introducing her to sustainable brands and uh, is very happy to support them. And she's just a very thoughtful, intelligent human being. And she likes to represent her values across everything that she does um, from her work to her red carpet. Why can't celebrities dress themselves? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, look. I mean, I'm being silly, but it's a good question. It is. It's a reason? great question. Well, because they're actors, right? And the red carpet is another stage. And there's a lot at stake on a red carpet. It's where producers see you. It's where casting directors for massive campaigns that are your payday see you. So why wouldn't you bring in an expert? If you're an artist um, or if your craft is to be an actress, then you might not necessarily have either the time or the resources or the inclination to put in all the work that is required to look amazing on the red carpet. And actually, it's also there is in this culture that we live in a climate of relentless criticism. I was once asked by Who magazine or something, one of them like that, maybe it was NW, some magazine like that, to be on their thing that was hot or not. And I had to look at all these pictures of celebrities I'd never met and judge them. Isn't that horrible? I did it as well. You know, when I was... I tried uh, not to be a bitch, but, you know, I had to pick, like, hot or not. And I thought, well, actually, I think at the time I thought it was quite fun. But it's not fun. You're talking about an individual who is vulnerable and not enjoying the scrutiny, no doubt. You know, we always think actors are full of confidence, but I think most of it's a performance. Oh, my goodness. It's all a performance. But But um, with all that looking, isn't it? Like, who failed? Fashion police, all that stuff. It's very... It's a high-pressure environment. Well, it's interesting because my first big celebrity client was Alicia Keys. 
And I met her when I was working at W Magazine. And W Magazine within the fashion industry is obviously really well known and very well respected, but it's a niche magazine. And we were talking to a very niche audience who unequivocally rejoiced everything that we did. So then I moved into arguably one of the most famous female singers on the planet. And, you know, the types of appearances that we were doing would attract a huge audience. And with it came a type of scrutiny and criticism that I had never encountered before. And also the people and the broader community that doesn't get in inverted commas, the fashion look. So often I will look at, for instance, someone at a red carpet event, like a, an award ceremony and think, oh, they really nailed it. Isn't it wonderful? Look at those. And then Selena a broader audience the, hates it. wearing pants and looking so cool. And yeah, the broader audience is like, yuck, where's the pink yeah. dress? Well, that's what happened to me essentially is that within my bubble, within my bubble of contacts, we were like, this is fantastic. We love this. This is amazing. And then I would do the horrendous thing, which don't do it, of reading comments online. Never read the comments I, I online. mean, it was, and of course it's sort of an addictive like hate act that you do. And I would read it and a regular audience hated it. I mean, not always, but sometimes that would happen. This is such a fascinating conversation because I think I've just admitted to being culpable to part of this culture because I did that hot or not job. I didn't get paid. You know, I was invited to come and do this bitchy scrutiny thing. And I thought, oh, fun. We all do this to a lesser or greater extent. And I think that the more you're conscious of it, the less you would do it in public. But I think there's a voice in our mind that plays, oh, not sure about that. Or, oh, that's wonderful. This culture is actually toxic. And I've been writing quite a lot about the impacts of trolling and online bullying in terms of the feminist conversation recently. And I think we are doing ourselves such a disservice to let this negativity in when we look at how people look, aren't we? For me, it's absolutely horrendous. And in that example that I just gave, and not, you know, I don't want to make it seem as though mm. we were hated on all the time. We absolutely weren't. And I'm very but proud of the, the work that we did. The bitchy bits, they get in your brain. They get they? in your brain. And for me, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I can see my work. But as you say, a lot of people don't know what a stylist does. So really, the talent that I'm dressing, it's their face front and center and they're wearing it and they're receiving that every day. And it doesn't matter how successful you are or how much money you make or how many accolades you get. Having people speak about you in that way is going to hurt your feelings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not going to make you feel good. And I agree that it's just a very toxic thing that is so widely accepted and beyond widely accepted it's a sport it's a sport Mm. it's you know i mean we forget who the victims are yeah and it's a horrendous thing and it's sort of a way and i mean it's honestly it's jealousy being played out really if you're going to whittle it down to the you know its base level i mean not if you're being called in and just asked to judge that's one thing but you know i think that oftentimes a regular audience will sort of look at someone who seems larger than life because they're famous Mm. and think that harsh words are not going to affect them. And why would you think that? They're Mm. a human just like you are. I mean... The other side of this conversation about the power of celebrity and the great reach that some of these red carpet events and social situations that get disseminated broadly in the media do have is that with that mass audience comes great power. And if you can harness it and use it to spread a good message, whether it's about body image, diversity, or as we're thinking now, you and I, about sustainable fashion, that is gold, isn't it? Like if you can get some ethical fashion or a new emerging designer label with a good message 
on one of these very high profile women, it's worth a mint, isn't it? It is. Got really English when I said that. You did. I liked it. (laughs) I liked it very much. Um, Yeah, I think it's uh, very helpful towards spreading a message about a larger picture of clothing. You know, I think the key to that really comes down to accompanying the appearance with a little bit of education if you can, if you have an opportunity to do so. You know, I think just seeing the brand isn't necessarily going to, you know, a larger audience may not put two and two together or it might not switch on a light bulb for them. But I think a little bit of tiny bit of education alongside a huge appearance like that is incredibly powerful and it's exciting when it happens. The big obvious example of someone doing really good work in that space is obviously EcoAge and Livia Firth. Yes. Because that conversation is big, isn't it? Definitely. People start talking about it and loving it, don't they? And it's all over Instagram and people talk about it. Yeah. And not only that, what she does, which I really love, is she shows that you can have an equally as glamorous event without compromising the environment or with a more sustainable product. And I think that that message is incredibly important. I think that this idea that by doing something good, something is being taken away from you is completely misguided and frankly, entirely wrong. And she does a really wonderful job of demonstrating that, not saying it, but saying, here is my fabulous red carpet in Venice with, you know, beautiful people (laughs) looking fantastic. And by the way, it's sustainable. That's Mm. a wonderful thing. Which labels are you currently excited about or have you discovered or are you using as standbys when it comes to dressing perhaps on that red carpety level? I mean, we're not all wearing red carpet clothes daily, are we? So perhaps we don't need them. But for me, it's less obvious which ones are obviously sustainable. You know, we hear a lot more about basics and a lot more about, and maybe rightly so, but which brands on the glamorous side are you excited about sustainability-wise? Well, in the spirit of visiting Sydney, I am very excited about Kit X. I use Kit X as much as humanly possible because I think she's really fabulous and She actually is a wonderful example because her collection really runs the gamut from red carpet worthy dresses all the way to things that you can feel fantastic in in your day to day. So I really like her and I think she's quite wonderful in that sense. I also, you know, I am a really big advocate for vintage pieces as well. So you use a lot of vintage in your pictures, but do you dress clients in vintage? Dressing someone in vintage requires the right talent and the right vintage. So a little less so these days. I used to a lot more, but I'm always looking out for it. It's just a matter of finding the right combination of things. Um, And of course, for the red carpet, Tome, our friends Tome, they're wonderful. And Prabhu Gurung is another one who's fantastic. He's definitely taking important strides towards sustainability Um, and he has a wonderful philanthropic arm of his company and he does fantastic red carpets and also just great sweaters and pants for you know for everyday people so there's definitely designers that I get excited about um, when I'm prepping for a big event I will certainly make an effort I sort of start with my favorite sustainable brands you know I start there and then I will move to a bigger picture but bear in mind you know Armani is someone I work with a lot and they're very slowly starting to you know try to become a little more sustainable they eradicated fur Gucci is a part of caring they're really trying to become more sustainable so whilst 
some of these bigger houses are definitely not perfect from top to bottom. There is a huge effort that has really sort of taken hold in the last year, as you would know, shifting more towards a more sustainable business and production. So how much have you seen that shift in terms of the clients that you work with magazines, but also talent? Like, so do actors more often now say to you, I'm really into this. Can you find me something ethically produced or is that not, are we not there yet? I wouldn't say that they come to me and say, would you mind just getting me a rack of sustainable clothes? I wish they would. I do too, but you know, we I guess do, some might. But we need to understand too that on their side, there's an enormous amount of pressure that comes with these appearances. And I mean, some actresses, when I've been with them and watching them be interviewed, it's pretty horrendous some of the questions that they get asked. And it really speaks to the type of pressure that they are under in order to sell films and to sell themselves. So there's a whole other layer going on for them beyond our view of just this is a red carpet fashion moment you know what I mean which again I suppose that speaks to why can't they dress themselves they're you know they're learning speak talking points and you know promoting the film and they have so many other things going on in the business of Hollywood which is a whole other thing so do they come to me and say hey Laura (laughs) would you mind terribly just getting sustainable stuff or, or coming to me and asking for it directly Not yet. However, the majority of the women that I work for are very excited when I present them with some options and they're sustainable. And what I tend to do in my prep is because my job at the end of the day is to make my client look as good as possible. That is my job. And almost feel as confident as possible and forget what they're wearing to some extent. Yes. So I don't keep hidden to the side a bunch of fantastic dresses and push on sustainable dresses at a subpar, Mm. I will make sure to put in the extra mile to prep as many options as possible that are sustainable. And I have some that are maybe less so because I have to cover everything. And what tends to happen is most often my clients gravitate towards brands that are sustainable. And then I get to have the opportunity to say, well, as a matter of fact, not only does this look great on you, but this company is doing X, Y, Z and they feel so amazing. And, you know, it's an organic thing. And I think that that's a nice introductory approach, not guilting you into feeling like you have to choose this dress. But as a matter of fact, maybe if I had said to you, oh, we're going to focus on sustainable fashion, you would have had a bias thinking that you wouldn't have had as good options. And Mm -hmm. as it turns out, Mm -hmm. that's the one that you loved the most. And what's exciting is increasingly I am able to present better and more beautiful options. options. Yes. And it's less common now that I am compromising my values in the way that I dress my clients. So I want to ask you how you began, but before we get onto that, we need to ask about the Golden Globes where everyone wore black as a statement for Time's Up now. It made me think so much about the power of clothes and, you know, there was quite a lot of criticism to begin with. Oh, it's just a dress, that's not going to do anything. But when it unfolded how much the campaign was multi-layered and that there was real teeth behind it and it was about money and about a fund and about real change and not just Hollywood then it just becomes this amazing thing, right? Fashion was almost like the, I don't know, like the teaser. I mean, a uniform holds enormous power, you know? I mean, you wouldn't send the military out in their Sunday best or, you know, or like as a hodgepodge group that aren't matching. I mean, a uniform has power. It's, you know, however that 
looks. It's that's no different to a school uniform, which we don't have in the states so much, but in Australia you have a school uniform, and or police officers, or the military, or a doctor's uniform, or whatever. So it's a show of unity. It's a show. Yeah, it's a show of unity, and unity is really powerful. Community is really powerful. I mean, there's power in numbers, and there's a sense of solidarity. So I'm always somewhat amused and also a little bit shocked at the way that fashion is so easily dismissed. But I think it has so much to do with the word fashion. You know, it's just clothing. <laughs> and clothing is a uniform and it's a comfort and it's, a, you know, it provides warmth. I mean, it's so multi-layered. So I actually forget who wrote this wonderful quote, but it was, clothes won't change the world, but the women who wear them will. It's an Instagram favourite, but it's true. Yeah. And yet the clothes are the visual package and often the first statement that you make. You can't shy away from the impact of first impressions. I mean, our eyes make judgments. Yeah. And I mean, if you take that quote, all of those women were finding a way to non-verbally communicate to each other, I support you. And that has the ability to then empower each of those individuals in feeling like they could come forward and behave or say or act however they felt would help their cause so yeah there's like a a dialogue that is sort of happening that's non-verbal but also as a symbol it was such a good talking point opener wasn't it it was almost like you couldn't escape the conversation and that whole thing of trying to subvert the red carpet silliness of who are you wearing who are you wearing who are you wearing in this case it couldn't be that people had to ask why are you doing this well exactly which is it's so great Especially because in recent years, um, it has been talked about so much more how sexist those red carpets really are and how, you know, the nail, the nail cam. I've never seen it. I haven't seen it either, but it was something like you had to. So you would, uh, I guess it was a thing where you put your nails in and they would shoot. Like, I guess they looked on your manicures. I'm sure it was sponsored by God knows who, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would have been some kind of cash grab from mm-hmm. the network in but some But when you think about how much time you have on that carpet to say something about the work or about right, the world. Right, but they world. don't ask the women about the work really. Can I mean, they, they don't never, nails? but so much less. And that's a point that's been slowly coming to light. So I feel that this was really the turning point of that other conversation that's been going on where women are just there as trophies literally (laughs) to receive trophies to get trophies but it was not a conversation about talent and grit as much as it was about appearance and that's essentially why Time's Up exists because both on the red carpet and behind the camera and every facet of actresses lives they've been considered first and foremost for their appearance and as trophies mm-hmm. <laughs> and time's up on that oh well, let's hope so yeah let's hope so i mean actually you feel glib saying it because perhaps it isn't but the journey begins i wanted to just raise then the fashion conversation because time's up spread me too spread everywhere didn't it but in our world it also spread into the fashion world and it's just been so interesting to see people come forward through cameron russell's instagram but also in the media and talk about how fashion is also this kind of, at times, cesspit of weird sexism and power games. And I'm going to read you, which I did make a note of, part of the letter that Edie Campbell, the British model who you guys would probably know from Burberry campaigns and Louis Vuitton campaigns, very famous Vogue cover girl from Britain. She wrote this open letter that ran in Women's Wear Daily 
and it's quite long and involved. And I will, I'll share a link to it. It's pretty interesting. But one of the things that she said was about the broader context of fashion. So not entirely about sexism this bit. We operate within a culture that's too accepting of abuse in all its manifestations. This can be the ritual humiliation of models, belittling of assistants. I'm pulling a face when I say it power plays and screaming fits. We've come to see this as simply part of the job. And then she wrote, there's no line between the personal and the professional in my work. Work to me doesn't look like work. And I read this and thought, we all know this. We've all seen it. Now, I haven't personally seen sexual harassment on the job, but this stuff, the belittling and the craziness and this power plays, yes, I have. It's rampant. I mean, it comes with the territory and it really is horrendous. Um, you know, I certainly throughout my career have had the pleasure of working with a lot of my heroes. All I ever wanted to do from the time I was maybe 13 or so was to work in magazines and work in fashion and specifically a stylist. I do not know how I knew what a stylist was. I cannot recall how I got that information. Um, this was sort of preliminary internet. We didn't know all that much, but I had mastheads on my wall. I had all the campaigns and all my favorite editorials, but I didn't have any celebrities. I had multiple mastheads which is uh, in retrospect is a little excessive so the list of who does what where in each magazine that comes at the front yes exactly you know and it says editor-in-chief yes i had i ripped laura. that out and so when I, had director, the, laura. I had the french vogue masthead and i stuck it on my wall and i crossed out kareen roitfeld's name and i wrote in in marker laura jones because that's what i wanted to be and um it was before the secret I think I invented the secret. I would love to know when that check's coming. <laughs> um, so this world to you was a world of magic wonderment. It was. It really was. And I worked incredibly hard to get myself to New York and to get myself the jobs that I got. And I mean, you know, I got very lucky and worked really hard. So once I entered the industry, I met so many of my heroes and I felt so lucky, but I also witnessed a lot of things that I was really taken aback by. And as an outsider, I always sort of considered myself an outsider because, you know, I was from Australia and I was working in New York and London and Paris and all over the place. And fashion is definitely a real club and it's sort of by design makes you feel like you have to be indoctrined into a club and accepted. So the fact that I would see dynamics like what you're talking about of a bit of bullying or taking advantage of power that was going on and that it disturbed me really just made me feel like I didn't quite understand or belong to the club. Mm. Even though deep down I would think, I know this is wrong. Like mm. I would definitely see dynamics and think immediately this is wrong. And we're talking about what sort of things? We're talking about abusive bosses to assistants. I mean, the best word for it is bullying, but I mean extensive um, psychological attacks on people um as you know and it was clear that it's stemming from like mm. insecurity across the board mm. was sort of what well it's funny power games and um i think that we see it across the hierarchical nature of fashion i'm sure it's the same although i have no experience in this world in things like the visual arts or the performing arts or we know it is from watching what's happening in hollywood yeah but 
in fashion, there's a real hierarchy and people play up to that. And I've witnessed it loads of times. And here's a sort of frivolous example, except not so funny if you were the model. I remember once at Australian Fashion Week when it was Subi. They are an Australian denim collective. And they had this show which was on a boat in the harbour and it was the last show of the day and it was supposed to be at 10 o'clock. But as usual with these things, it just went on and on and on. And I feel like it was one o'clock by the time this happened. So everyone's stuck on the boat, you can't get off. God knows why it's taking so long. But the models are shivering in whatever tiny, scant little bit of bikini top and cut-off denim shorts they're wearing. And then after being stuck there for goodness knows how many hours on the harbour being freezing while we were all in coats sitting there complaining, they all had to walk down the runway, which was just the boat, and then jump into the harbour. I mean, what even is that? Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, What is the point of that? Why does that need to happen? But actually, if you think about it, that is ridiculous. No 17-year-old girl or anyone of any age should have to work a day that finishes at 1am with a plunge in a freezing harbour when everyone's laughing at you and then complaining and then leaving you there to shiver. It's an odd world. Imagine if you work a 9-to-5 office job. You would not be accepting this. It's like there's no HR. There is no HR. I mean, in theory, there is, but it is the way that Edie described it is so true. It's boundaryless and it's very hard to define what's okay and what's not because you're creating with people. And so that requires a little bit of malleability and crossover and discussion. And and you want to be the fun one. You don't want to be the one that's saying, I'm not jumping in the harbour at one o'clock in the morning. Sorry. Yeah, but again, it's the big girls don't do that, do they? No. <laughs> you know, but Giselle so walks in on set, takes three photos and walks off again. Absolutely. I mean, that's it. Her, her, her shoots are done in an hour. But I think this is an interesting conversation more broadly around the idea of ethical fashion because both Laura and I are obsessed with ethical fashion and think, I guess, in ever-evolving ways around what that definition might mean. And before we started recording, I said to Laura, I've always thought about ethical fashion in terms of supply chains. And you said to me, well, no, actually, you've thought about it in in other ways in terms of the ethics of how advertising makes us feel, the ethics of supply chains for sure, but not just production, but actually the end garment and also the culture around it. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about how ethics fits into this conversation? Yeah, well, you know, I think what's been very interesting for me is that I come at this idea of ethics and sustainability and consciousness and healthfulness in fashion from the point of view of someone who creates outward facing work. You know, my role essentially as a stylist is to create desire for a product or a person. That is my job. And what first inspired me to become interested in sustainable fashion is that I could really see how the marketing side of fashion is really disingenuous and really does an enormous disservice to consumers and especially to women. Um, So when we talk about ethics in fashion, I think so much about how feminism and ethics and sustainability all intersect. And in fact, you know, ethics in fashion is very much a women's issue and a feminist issue because the problem is, is that women are very adversely affected by the fashion industry from A to Z, from Mm. supply chain right up until it lands in your wardrobe. And that happens with marketing that ruins your self-esteem, with, you know, a ridiculous and unachievable sense of beauty, with robbing you of your dollars because you're buying things that you absolutely don't need. And that excessive consumerism it really undermines your self-worth in ways that you're not really aware. And you're being sold this idea that 
your self-worth lies in this product. And that's absurd. That is completely absurd. I very much believe in creativity and expressing yourself and clothing can be a conduit for that, but it can't be the only one. And there needs to be the ability to discern between what is expression and what is someone telling you is your expression. And it's very difficult to do that. So not only, you know, do we have millions of women in modern day slavery making this clothing, we have millions of women entrapped, I'm not going to say enslaved because it's inappropriate, but also entrapped and in a prison of a different kind. And it's a women's issue across the board. And that actually is what I think about most often and what really worries me. And I think that imparting that message is important and getting women to realize this and and start to process that and use that as a way to inspire them to sort of change the system and to say, you know what, (laughs) time's up. (laughs) This is not working for me anymore. You know, I think that that's a really interesting um, Mm. way to sort of look at ethics in fashion, you know, not just climate change or not just one segment. I think it's um, systemic. Absolutely. And also, you know, it's predominantly men who profit off of the fashion industry. There's really very, you know, aside from some editor-in-chief positions and some designer positions, you know, we are not reaping the benefits of this industry. And why is that? Mm -hmm. We control most of the wealth of the fashion industry. And yet, what are we getting out of it? It's interesting because I think that We mentioned earlier this idea that fashion can be, or perhaps we didn't, perhaps it's always just in my head because I often think of it and often experience it and hear it, that fashion's just frivolous and fashion doesn't matter. And if you want to change the world, go and work in politics or go and be a scientist. But actually, these conversations do need to be had more often. We need to apply those things like philosophy, like economics. We need to apply those methods of thinking to the fashion space and to try to shake it up and reinvent it don't we and we can I know so many bright and brilliant minds in fashion and you're one of them Laura and in fact there's been many of them on this podcast and we're all trying to reshape the world that we've sort of inherited and that just doesn't really work anymore right it's true it's yeah and I think that I really think about it from a point of healthfulness in fashion. You know, I like it when you say, yes, economics. I love to think about the economics of it. And I love to think about the philosophy of it and where health plays a role in this. Mm -hmm. Like fashion can be incredibly unhealthy for you in these exact same ways eating junk food is unhealthy for you. And how that manifests might be slightly different to food in the symptoms, but the problem is still the same. And I think that it's a really effective marketing tool to frame fashion as frivolous bit of and sugar to coat your life yeah, don't worry about so, it too much yeah darling. yeah exactly don't worry about it unless you're going to spend a whole lot of money on it you know I mean I I drive my husband totally insane because I will obsess over the philosophy of everything that we're doing and okay. I, and I like, see just buy the vegetables. Yeah. it doesn't have to be a massive debate I can just see him just <laughs> dying a little bit inside sometimes when he's like so are we buying the pen I mean what is the outcome of this tangent that you have gone on for two hours so I understand many people do not have the wherewithal all the time to do that but 
maybe we could learn to introduce a little bit more thoughtfulness in all of our purchases. I love this thinking. And I also love that you mentioned that idea of health because I haven't, I don't think I've ever introduced a conversation about fashion through that lens of health, maybe about mindfulness, but it's interesting just to look at it from that perspective. And we have got this obsession, haven't we, as a culture with the healthy body and also a little bit with a healthy mind. And yet we haven't really kind of extrapolated that into this idea of what fashion means. You're trying to shake it up in your own way with your new magazine. I'm calling it a magazine because I'm so old school. <laughs> You're not printing it, right? We're not printing Shall it. Shall I no. call it a site? You can call it. I'm you can it a call magazine. it whatever you like. You call can call it, call it a magazine. And it's called The Front Lash and it launched. I did always want to be an editor in chief of a magazine. Of <laughs> so let's call, it a magazine. let's call it a magazine. And actually, you might need to print out a must. Never thought I would just have to do it on my own, but it's fine. <laughs> so, The Front Lash. Yes. Tell yes. us all about how that is going to rethink some of this stuff. So, The Front Lash is an online magazine. I sort of call it the feminine frontline to this issue. And it's really a space that has lots of yummy fashion and lots of beautiful images and lots of fantastic sustainable brands and ethical brands that you may or may not know about. But it's also really a space to discuss these ideas that we're talking about of healthfulness in fashion, of philosophy in fashion, of the economics of your wardrobe and how to save money with your wardrobe and how to bring self-esteem into your wardrobe and how to make your wardrobe work for you, how to truly express yourself with your clothing, not through a marketer's lens, but through your own lens. And, you know, talk about all of these ideas, but in ways that are exciting and interesting and achievable and achievable is an interesting one to throw in there because some of the fashion fancies that I've fallen for have been completely dreamlike nothing to do with practical life (laughs) not accessible and not gonna happen I am a boringly practical person at my crux I love the whimsy of fashion but which again is why I think I end up working with celebrities a lot because I actually like to see how clothes work on a person, on a person of any shape or size yeah. or situation. That's really entertaining for me. I love seeing a clothes on a girl with a big butt or a small butt or, a, you know, whatever it may be. So, you know, I like the practicality of clothing. I enjoy that very much. So, But I'm thinking that the practicality is something that is actually missing in this conversation of the high fashion conversation. I feel like Beyond the kind of six raincoats you need now, which to me is not really practical anyway, it's just silly, just trying to sell you more stuff you don't need. Exactly. The practical application of the philosophy of fashion is interesting. It is, and it's something that I'm really obsessed with and I really like to have the opportunity to sort of present that it doesn't, it's exciting to me. It's a creative way of looking at clothing. And the front lash to me is really sort of taking what initially was a problem in my mind. So the problem of ethical or sustainable or conscious clothing and morphing that into a way to have a really creative space and look at new ideas and look at new ways to approach the fashion industry, look at new ways to approach dressing, looking at new ways to approach shopping and sort of take the idea of fashion, which we, we call a creative industry, but oftentimes it isn't, and bringing back that creativity. So I like it because I think sometimes there can be a sense of, well, you know, for women that they have a sense that if they shop ethically that they're missing out 
And as a matter of fact, I feel that it's the complete opposite. And you have a great opportunity to sort of approach something from a different way to, you know, to explore creativity if that's what interests you or to just save some money if that's what's interesting for you as well. I actually, um, I read this fantastic book called The Feminist Utopia Project. Good title. Haven't heard of it. It's a, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was basically, it's a collection of essays and stories and articles that a group of wonderful women wrote describing their feminist utopia. If you could reimagine the system, what would that look like? Love. And it was wonderful because there were so many creative answers and it turned what can be a very depressing and overwhelming topic into an opportunity to think outside the box and to not feel oppressed, but inspired by a problem. I love the creativity of problem solving. I think that that's really exciting. And I like that the site is an opportunity to sort of bring in a lot of different brilliant minds and present like some different potential solutions to problems Mm -hmm. and present it to the everyday person who does not have time to sit and spend hours upon hours deliberating on how they're going to change, you know, X, Y, and Z in their behavior and their wardrobe to solve this problem, but to just sort of be inspired and maybe bring a little bit of it into their own lives. One of the most interesting things about this moment in time, which has obviously come from technology and it is, it's been building, but is this idea that we don't have one story anymore. That whole behind the velvet rope, big fashion thing, since we've lifted that rope, everyone's got access to that. And we've talked a lot in the media about the democratisation of fashion, that you can watch a show on a live stream, you don't have to go to Fashion Week and everyone can participate on social media. But the other side of that, which I find very interesting and exciting, is that all these magazines and new creative voices and purely creative voices that are largely unsullied, because you're not going to be that rich, let's face it, by commercial pressures, can explore this stuff in ways that is... That's how I got into mags in the first place. That's why I loved magazines, for those unique voices, for those wacky, crazy shoots or those really artistic people expressing themselves. And I feel like we lost that a bit. But now it's coming from independent magazines. Anyone can do it, really. It's true. It's absolutely true. And nothing is more thrilling to me and inspiring to me than watching anyone in any sense take a little slice of their world recognize that they're not thrilled with it, reimagine it, and then just do it. I mean, honestly, people do it in the smallest and the biggest ways every day. And I get such joy from watching that. I try so hard to do that as much as I can in my own life. And I just think that there's not, there's really nothing better than seeing that happen. And, you know, as you say, the aesthetic of fashion has moved away from the flamboyant, but there's no reason that that creativity cannot be injected in other ways. I was thinking when you said that about Elisa Goodkind, and if listeners haven't heard the podcast we did early on in series one, there's a fantastic interview with her and she is the woman behind or one of two women, her and her daughter behind Style Like You. And she's also going to appear in the front lash. Correct. But she says this fab thing, which is disentangle style from fashion. Exactly. And that, I mean, that is a lot of what the front lash is about because that's what I did as a stylist. You know, I had to, before I could get to a point where I'm sitting around thinking about the philosophy of clothing and becoming an editor-in-chief of my own magazine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I just had such a realization today that I I actually just want to take a moment and go. (laughs) Why? Thank you. Finally, so embarrassed. But um, yeah, I mean, my own stylistic journey, or or however you want to put it, um, going from a hardcore fashion consumer, and I mean totally hardcore you know, every new clothing, every week type of consumer. And were you that one who saved up all your little wages from working at a magazine in your early 20s and blew it on shoes? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it was horrendous. So I would say that I was definitely a fashion addict and had swallowed the pill. So, you know, that journey from that person to the person that I am today was not quick. And I had to disentangle a lot of beliefs that I had from being indoctrined in the fashion system and being marketed to even whilst I'm creating the images myself I'm also being marketed to and that's not an easy thing to do that's not an easy leap to take you know in these conversations we can sort of break it down on the other side and say you know oh it's easy just don't listen to marketing anymore Mm. that's absurd marketing is everywhere and we've grown up with marketing so that's not going to happen But, you know, my own journey was basically learning that exact lesson. And the front lash is really about sharing everything that I learned on that journey and in a way that is hopefully accessible and helps you to maybe you'll find a part of it that you can relate to your own life and and sort of apply it. So it's going to be my new favorite thing. I hope so. I can already tell. I hope so. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. What a lovely, lovely conversation, (laughs) even though we actually talked about some hectic, nasty things. And yet I feel like we finished up with a very inspiring idea that slowly is how evolution happens. And I think in the ethical fashion conversation, we often try to say to people or it comes across that we're saying, just stop that. It's true. And that isn't how it works, is it? It's definitely not how it works. It's not even close. It's it's baby steps. And I think it's also about if you are new to sustainable fashion or ethical fashion or whatever, that's okay. And it's okay to take baby steps. And as a matter of fact, you should. Because <laughs> effective and long-lasting change is always incremental. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you Because I love you